Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I think you need to have uh, a belief enough in yourself that you put yourself in the four seasons and that, you know, you take the hit financially sometimes to not do things that are going to take you off of a path that could really lead you to a place that you can look back on at the end of your career and say, even if I didn't make it, I really, I played it right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm here and very, very pumped to be across from Greg Fitzsimmons. It's very odd to be across from somebody who you sort of feel like you you started with, even though you didn't really start with because I'm much older than him. But I feel like he's cut from a tiny bit of the same path as mine because he did go to school at Boston University where I went to school and he did cut his teeth in the Boston comedy scene like I did. And as I sit across from him, what comes to my mind first, when you say the name Greg Fitzsimmons, two other words come to mind. Nice guy. There wasn't ever a situation that I ever recall in my entire life where I ever heard him say a disparaging word about anybody in public. And what happens when you're a comedian and you're starting out, and I don't know if this is true of other professions, but you get sucked in this world of hanging out. And comedy clubs are like, you ask them, hey, listen, can I get a spot? Well, you got you to gotta hang out. If you hang out and you're with people, people see you around. And then if there's a cancellation, sometimes they put you in. And what happens when you get sucked into this thing, when you're hanging out, you're essentially hanging out with the majority of the comedians, I hope I'm not too cruel here, who are very dysfunctional. They're either uh, drinking in excess every night, they're doing everything from weed to much stronger things, Uh, they're chasing pussy whenever they can till four in the morning, and they're talking shit about the latest person who has an hour special or who got a sitcom, or got a big break. And you're thrust into this world as a young comic and also as a growing comic because you're sitting there and you almost feel like you're in a schoolyard because if you don't comment 
on the things that are going on and say something and interject something, you might feel like the next time you come up, you're not allowed at the table. And I've been at those tables a lot. And I personally was a guy who got my ass handed to me in these tables many, many times while I was there and when I wasn't there. And I wouldn't mind throwing barbs out left and right and roasting people and doing that, that thing at the table because I guess that's just the back and forth that I enjoyed. If I was going to take the shot, I was going to give it back. But I've been at those tables with Greg Fitzsimmons, and I've been around him at the comedy clubs coming up, and I've also seen him in New York when I was doing my club in New York. And I never once heard Greg Fitzsimmons ever say anything bad about anybody. He navigated the world very, very well. And this is what was odd for me, um, and I want to share this with you because I'm going to bare my soul here. Because Greg Fitzsimmons was such a kind soul and had he might have had a darkness to him that he was pushing down. But the point was, is no one ever saw this side of him that maybe he showed other people or a best friend or something. But he was always a great guy. And consequently, I had noticed throughout the comedy scene that normally the great guys and the guys who were chasing pussy and the guys who were doing the drugs and doing things were the ones that seemed to be getting the breaks. And it didn't make sense to me because all through my life I was taught, listen, straight and narrow, work hard, work hard on your craft as much as you can uh, and enjoy it. But don't enjoy it too much because you just got to keep going and fight. But I was seeing people who were waking up at the crack of noon, smoking a bag of weed a day, getting movies, television shows, hour specials. So there was a point in time where I actually left myself in terms of how my philosophy was. And I thought, you know, OK, well, it's pretty clear that nice guys don't make it in this business. And when I looked at Greg Fitzsimmons, I thought to myself, God, this guy's got great material. He's a great guy, but is he ever going to make it? How's he going to make it when he doesn't chase pussy all night long? He doesn't shit on people. He doesn't do drugs. And so I, I always looked at you and I'm sitting across from you telling the truth. I always looked at you as the underdog, as a guy who I truly didn't know if you could possibly navigate this world with all this craziness and all these different kinds of people and make it work. And I was wrong because you did. And then when I started seeing you on things like Letterman, which for those of you listening and you don't know this, I don't care what anybody tells you. Letterman is the gold standard of stand-up comedy. I don't care if you have a half-hour special on Comedy Central. I don't even care if you have an hour special on Comedy Central. If you don't have a letterman on your resume, then that says something. That says something that the validation stamp of comedy was David Letterman. It, it, you know, it, it means that there's something missing there that should be there or, or hasn't been there yet. And that may change the way the landscape is with Fallon and with Seth Meyers and the new people coming in. But to me... That was always the case. So when Greg did Letterman for the first time, and I remember watching it, and you don't know that I watched it, I 
I was like, holy shit. And I always say it's all about the holy shit moments. And to me, when I saw that set, I said to myself, it's over. I mean, this guy does not have to do anything. He doesn't have to prove himself anymore, which is not true because you always have to prove yourself. But I'm talking about in the comedy world, from that point forward, in my mind, you were anointed and no one could ever take anything away from you ever again. And at that moment, sadly, and I'm bearing my soul here, I gained so much respect for you as a comedian, as a man, and with what you were doing. And I never had another doubt about you ever going to take it to the next level again. So in the scheme of the shortest cold open I've ever done in my life, I just want to say one thing. It does pay to be a nice guy. As Carol Leifer would say when Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld were hiring writers. They shunned every single writer who had every credit in the world. They didn't want anybody that was tainted by the system. And later on, they told her what they wanted. And what they wanted was an easy hang. And Greg Fitzsimmons is an easy hang. And in the beginning, when I saw all these people making it and doing all these great moves in the business and movies and TV and doing all these things that I thought were against the grain and not what was going to take them to the next level, I realize now 10, 20 years later, as I think about all those people, it's a long fucking race. And a lot of those people went home. But Greg Fitzsimmons... He didn't go home. So my lesson today is stay the course, do great work, be a nice guy, and everyone will want to work with you. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Harry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. So what happened to where the moment came where you said to yourself, I'm never working a day job again. I am a stand-up comic. I make my living doing this, and this is what I'm doing. Well, I don't. I can't remember a hard moment because the, the banquet waiter gig was so sweet. I would go in at like, you know, three o'clock and it was like a four or five hour shift and it was it was good money at the time i mean it was like you know 16 bucks an hour which was pretty good back then you get a shift meal and you were working with college kids from all over boston hot chicks and you knew all the bartenders so you were drinking while you were working it was a party so i just took less and less shifts to the point where i was working maybe one or two shifts a week and uh and then I think w once it got to the point where I had, I mean, like you're talking about, the, you booked the most gigs in Boston, but then you had guys like Billy Downs and Dick Darty. So it got to the point where if you had a car and you had 15 solid minutes of material, you could go out and make 50 or 70 bucks a night cash, five, six, seven nights a week. So it got to the point where, you know, it just displaced any other work and I became an animal. I mean, I spent four years in Boston working 
like that with, again, Joe Rogan, you know, Robbie Prince and uh, Todd Parker and all these guys, some of which made it, some of them didn't. And, uh, and it just became this grind where during the day, I'd call Nina, I'd call Billy, I'd call Dick, fill up my date book, and then we would uh, play softball. The comedians would play softball and hang out. It was an, it was the greatest time of my life in a sense because I knew what I wanted to do my whole life, and now I was doing it. I was doing it in the epicenter of stand-up comedy. In the history of comedy, there will never be a boom like there was in Boston at the time when you were booking those rooms. It was crazy. It was crazy. And it was a closed community. People did not come in from outside. There was a few New York comics that worked, but not many. And there were great people. And you mentioned great people. And I should say something about Joe Rogan. Of course, you haven't spoken in well over three minutes. I am known to speak a lot on these podcasts. I'm sorry. I'll try to be better at that. I'll try to be the best representative. I keep staring at that bar that you have wrapped up there that you haven't eaten. I well, don't know why I, that I is. Well, I showed up and I didn't know if you had a cafe here and I just came from doing another interview with Mr. Tom Papa, your friend. Wow. I can't believe I get the headline after Tom Papa. I could, I've been really looking forward to this, by the way. And I didn't know if they had a cafe and I was very hungry. So I, I brought a granola bar from my car thinking if I did didn't get a meal and luckily i had a nice chicken teriyaki bowl i can't believe you double booked that's incredible you, you I'm not, and then i have three spots tonight three stand-up spots tonight but i feel like you're very energetic you got it going but i want to talk about joe rogan yeah because i never have talked about joe rogan on this podcast ever and i remember seeing him for the first time at the comedy connection in boston and he was a great looking guy and he was ripped he had muscles in places that most people don't even have. He was the national taekwondo champion. Yeah, and I didn't know that when I was watching him. But you know when a guy is confident about his body in that time of year, it was almost like the fall, and he was wearing overalls with no shirt doing stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget David Tell's bit, and I've mentioned it before, that I always loved one of the first bits that David Tell, I ever saw him say, he said, I went to a gap with my friend, he comes out of the dressing room, he's wearing overalls, he looks at me and he says, uh, what go with these, Dave? And Dave says, uh, not a girl or a job. <laughs> That's right. I'll tell you what, don't go with those jobs and women. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but Joe Rogan was a guy that when I saw him in the back of the room doing his stand-up and he was killing, he was a little blue, but he was killing. And he was a guy wearing overalls, no shirt. And I said to myself, this guy is never going to have a problem with this guy's never going to have a problem with anything because he's like a force. Yeah. He was a force on stage. But the weirdest thing is I never looked at him as a guy who I thought necessarily in the, in the terms of breaking out of Boston or doing whatever. I don't know if it was, believe it or not, judging the book by its cover with the overalls and no shirt or the confidence that he had when most comedians in Boston, although they had confidence, they were more self-effacing. Lenny Clark had the most confidence of anybody, but he'd still have that little bit of humility within the act to do whatever. And Joe was just so forceful and so powerful. Well, he came from, I mean, his influences were Kinnison and, and, uh, you know, um, uh, Bill Hicks, yeah. you know, this unapologetic, strong voice. But I really, really 
I want to say this, I respected what he did on stage. I respected the image that he presented. And I respected the fact that he could kill just going up in any way like that and doing it. And I didn't really see him a lot in Boston. but when You I didn't did, book him. I, no, Nina was booking things at that time. Right. This is I think he started in the early 90s when right. I had started going to New York. Yeah, we both started in 89. Yeah, but I don't remember... If she booked him, how she well, he had him. trouble getting booked because the truth is, as an opening act, he was blown away the feature. As a feature, he was blown away the headliner. Even before he had the time, I think to headline, he was headlining and he grew into it. But um, yeah, because he was blue, there was definitely a little bit of a like um, he was more aggressive than some other comics. But I, you know, I know that he and I, I came up. I was definitely more aggressive and more blue. And it, it was, there, there became two cliques in Boston at that time. There was the esoteric catcherizing star, David Cross, Cross Comedy. Group. John Groff. John Groff and Paul Kozlowski and Mark Marin and, uh, you know, guys like John Benjamin that have gone on to be really huge in voiceover and writing. And, um, and then there was the guys that came from the Lenny, you know, Lenny would have been the king of the more road comic type of, of acts, which, you know, me and Joe were in. And, uh, you know, and it, it became a little bit of a, like a real, you know, sharks and the jets kind of thing. You know, they were, they were, they couldn't do well in the clubs that we could do well in and vice versa. And, uh, and it was, that was kind of an interesting time because it was the roots of Mr. Show. Really. A lot of the people from Mr. Show came from that, that movement. And then obviously the people that you named came out of, came out of this movement, you know, this side of things like, you know, Bill Burr's voice came very much from that, you know, road comic side of the Boston world. Yeah, because in Boston, for those of you who don't know, you know, you go to a comedy club here, let's say in L.A. or even in your hometown, you go to a comedy club there, you look around, you can't see a bar anywhere. You can't see where the drinks are coming from. All of a sudden, they just magically appear with a waiter or a waitress. In Boston, you were performing in the bars. Bars were turned into comedy clubs. Even the comedy clubs that were in Boston proper had a bar in the room. And so oftentimes, they had a television with the Bruins or the oh, Celtics yeah. on. Right. And you'd be doing a joke, and you'd hear this huge round of applause right. and like cheering, and you'd think, wow, I never knew that joke was so great. And you realize that the Bruins just scored. I remember doing a gig in Portsmouth, New Hampshire with Paul Kozlowski. I booked that gig. And uh, Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a TV on behind us. It was like a sports bar, and they were showing a uh, playoff game. And Paul got the remote control and he would do his acts and then he would be watching. And as soon as somebody would hit a ball deep, he would change the channel (laughs) so they couldn't see it. And he just kept doing that until people left. And then a couple guys threatened him and and the show is over. (laughs) I mean, there was a bit, the Bill Rick in 99 was another one that had a, a, a circular bar in the center of the room. So half the audience was in front of the bar. The other half was on the far side of the bar. And it was, it was like, sometimes it, for some weird reason, it worked. Sometimes it was a Chinese restaurant that had a that had a banquet room in the back, and all you did was put up a mic stand, no fucking lighting system. 
just a couple speakers and a mic stand. And sometimes it was just magic and it worked. Yeah, because I think that sometimes people just as a group collectively and in the comedy club, and this is something that nobody ever really analyzes, but it's very rare for an entire room full of people to love the person on stage. So you could have a guy killing at a comedy club and there might be 10 out of 200 people that don't like him, but they're overruled by the majority of the people there and the loudness of the crowd and everything that happens. And eventually when you're in a crowd like that, like say when there's the circular bar, there's people who just come there and they just, for some reason, they lock on to you. You don't know why, but the content keeps them. Right. And that's what uh, used to be able to go into these hell rooms and do really great, as did Joe Rogan and a number of people during that time. Well, yeah, and to get that critical mass required, you know, knowing what, and again, going back to pandering, it it wasn't necessarily the material that would make you consistently connect with them. It was the Don Gavin type delivery. The only way to describe Don Gavin is to compare him to double time music only with comedy because his comedy was so fast and right. so many throwaway lines. Right. It's all throwaway. And that's what they reacted to because throwaway basically goes, I belong here. You are incidental to this experience. It's this New England kind of uh, cockiness and uh, and so when you when you tell a joke and then you throw another joke out there and then you move on and you go over and you turn your back to them to have a sip of your drink and that that's what he did and the audience it grabbed them because they said oh he we're not the center of attention he is and all the power would just shift to the stage and that I found that mentality is what I took out of Boston was don't give them the power. You know, it's you're up there and if you're doing what what interests you and what is um, and is the is the thing that if you were watching a show, you would be doing if you're doing that, it will come to you. And if it doesn't, it shouldn't matter or they shouldn't see to you that it matters. Absolutely. And so talk about the first break you got where you actually said to yourself, I, I can do this. Well, I think passing in at the clubs in New York became a big milestone for me because I was working in Boston and for about two years I spent I spent Monday through Wednesday, Monday through Thursday in New York and then I would drive up to Boston on the weekends and I would do shows and I'd make enough money to pay my rent in New York or I actually stayed on couches or I stayed at my mother's house. Yeah, no, I, I paid rent in Boston and then I stayed with my mom or friends in New York and I would hang out at the Boston Comedy Club and the Comedy Cellar and the Strip and Stand Up New York. And it took me a while to get any spots at all. It was like like you were talking about, you got to hang out. And well, you got spots in my club. I did. I got spots. Well, that was the thing is that was the pipeline to New York was not only that Boston comics could come down and get stage time at the Boston Comedy Club. Just but so that, you were clear, the Boston Comedy Club was my club on West Third Street in New York. Right. And so not only was it that we could get spots there, but it was that of the few comics that came to Boston, they came through you. They were they were guys like Eddie Brill that came up and Colin Quinn. I remember Nick DiPaolo saying, Eddie Brill, I, did, I, I don't understand. How can anybody be pissed off at the phone book? <laughs> 
how can anybody <laughs> right. spend, why are they still making the yellow pages how could somebody spend 10 minutes being angry over the letter y <laughs> <laughs> so i would go to new york and guys like and louis was in this camp also i reached out to louis ck and eddie brill and those were the guys that got me an audition set at the at the clubs and then um, sometimes I passed, sometimes I didn't. The comic strip, Lucian Holt told me, he goes, you know, you're just another white, low energy male comic. I already have a ton of those. And so I kept showing up. And he said to me years later, he said, I always respected you because I gave you no ray of hope at this club. And you kept coming in and you kept coming in and you would do two AM spots in front of three people. And then eventually I became one of the regulars at the club. Show up, everybody. Just show up. And so I killed myself for a couple of years going back and forth like that. And uh, the, when I felt like a comic was when all of a sudden I was doing two and three sets a night in New York and walking away with, you know, $60 in my pocket for the three sets, spending most of that in cab fare, and then driving back to Boston jazz like, wow, I'm a fucking New York comic now. Awesome. Your first television break. Well, I mean, you know, I I did like uh, comedy on the road in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which, you know, didn't mean anything. But when you talk to John Biner's comedy on the road and um, but but when I did Letterman, which was 96 for the first time. Tell us about the process as a comedian auditioning and how do you get to audition and and how do you know you're on the path to actually getting it or do you just never know and it just happens? Um. I think, again, it goes back to that whole meritocracy thing. Letterman's got feelers out. If you're somebody that's interesting and you don't have to be drawing, you don't have to be making any money. If you're if you're a guy that is making some waves in New York and people are talking about the Letterman, people are going to see you. And in my case, I got lucky because I went to the Montreal Comedy Festival and I'd been doing comedy for, I guess, about eight years at this point. And uh, so I was a Boston comic. I had lies, you know, Malcolm Gladwell would say I had my 10,000 hours. Um, so how does that go with lucky? Right. Well, I got lucky in the sense that Montreal was still a place where important people showed up from the networks. You didn't get lucky. They saw you, you did the right stuff and they picked you to go there. Well, that's a, that's the non-Irish way of looking at it. And so, so I went up and I, I started doing sets in Montreal and I just caught fire. You know, every, every year there's one guy that just gets the buzz on him. And in 96, I was the guy I got, I did one set and then there was this kind of clamor and the next set I did. You know what I remember about that? Because you went up there and if I'm not mistaken, you didn't have a manager or an agent. Nope. And I remember this is my point as a manager where I was like, God, I just, I wonder if he'll talk with me. I wonder if he'll meet with me. I wonder if he'll give me the time of day when I'm up there. And you did meet with me and you did talk with me and you did give me the opportunity to tell you what I could do for you. But in the end, uh, I didn't get the gig. Well, Dave Becky, who was kind of, I had a loose relationship with Dave at that time. You know, he had sent me out for some stuff. He had pocketed pocketed me and he had a tell and Louie and Marin and Todd Barry. And so it was kind of like those were my guys coming up. And so I... uh, yeah, it helped that I had no manager or agent because then not only were the networks and the studios approaching me, so were the agents and managers. So it really got where the, my second set, I got off stage and no exaggeration, there was a line of people handing me business cards. 
Kate Jurgens from NBC, Brandon Tartikoff, I met with while I was up there. I mean, the it youngest was president in the network history. The at NBC. most respected Intel. I mean, when you talk about net, like what we all wish development executives were, it was Brandon Tartikoff. But anyway, without getting into the details, it was like, no, why don't you get into the details? I think it's important for the people listening of how you go from uh, living in an apartment with four people and a rugby guy on a couch bringing steaks in to the point where this is the moment where it's all happening and you have to decide which fork in the road do I take? I got a president of a network sitting across from me wanting to meet with me. I've got Dave Becky from uh, Three Arts wanting to represent me. And it's all happening. And how do you handle it? And what happens? Well, I had it. I remember my schedule was like, you know, 7 a.m., breakfast with this executive 10 o'clock and 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 it was like that all day for like four days and i left there with a booking on david letterman which meant more to i had a i got a development deal with fox out of that weekend yeah because manager what, because what happened with fox in the 90s things were hot at the montreal just for last festival and fox actually was the only network that actually brought a business affairs person up there to the festival right. so that they could lock down a deal with somebody if they found somebody without them leaving because they knew if somebody left, they might lose them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I nailed down a development deal for a sitcom manager, agent. Um, agent was Ruth Ann Secunda. Ruth Ann Secunda, who, who, was who uh, represented my first eight uh, clients right. at uh, Abrams Artists. Right, Chappelle and Jay and everybody. Yeah. And so, um, so basically all that stuff happened, but nothing came close to the Letterman booking. Which that is was, what I alluded to in the beginning of the podcast. Because right. again, Letterman is the holy grail for me. So you can have Brandon Tartikoff trying to represent you and have him on your network with the greatest comedians in the history of the world and Cosby and all these great things. Yet Letterman was more important than that meeting. Right. Letterman was more important than a deal for your own television show. Right, right. And you know how much Letterman paid back then? $534 and 50 cents. Right. And it was, uh, and I came back because I had like going back to like not calling, not having a career. I never said career. I never dreamt of being in a sitcom. I didn't dream of having an agent or a manager. I dreamed about getting on Letterman. And so they set up the booking. I did it, you know, six weeks later I came on and, you know, for those six weeks I went every, out every single night and pounded out that five minute set and uh, got obsessed. It was like training for the Olympics. I mean, I, I started running every day. I just wanted clarity. And so I went up and you had a great suit. I remember gray or olive green. Jesus. Yeah. It was a olive green suit. I told suit. you I watched My that set God. and I must've watched that set 20 times. Wow. Yeah, so I come out of my olive green suit, and they're they're playing uh, "Miss You" by the Rolling, no "Beast of Burn It" by the Rolling Stones. You get to pick your song to come out to, and uh, I hit my mark, and I see Letterman out of the corner of my eye, and I was so nervous. I did my first joke, and they started laughing, and that theater is magic. If you get them laughing in that theater, and then the rest of it was a complete blank. I don't remember any of it, but I got like nine applause breaks. The set could not have gone better. 
And before I walked out, I thought about my dad because my dad had died when I was probably about, I'd only been doing stand-up maybe three or four years and he died. And then Letterman happened not too long after that. And I just remember thinking before I went out, he was, he was in my head. And then I just, I walked off stage and I was bawling. I was just crying. And it was, uh, Zoe Friedman was there and, and Morton and uh, Zoe just gave me a hug. And then Faith Hill was going on next and she saw me and she came over and she gave me this big hug. And it was like, dude, I will never, not since I have not had a moment in my career that felt anything like that. That was the peak. Wow. So that was such a great story, Greg. Jesus. You got a great, a lot of holy shit moments here, buddy. All right. Tell me about how you decided then to become a writer. Like, how do you go from being a stand-up comic who has every deal in front of them? People are going crazy. They want you on The Tonight Show. They want you on all these things. And you're one of the few guys. This is another thing that everybody should take note of. Look at all the stand-up comics out there from the past 20 years. Tell me how many have done The Tonight Show, have done Letterman, have done Kimmel. You're one of the few comedians who've done all of those things, which is amazing. So anyway, so tell me what it's like as a comedian when things are going well like that. How do you decide that, okay, all of a sudden now I'm going to try writing? Well, my father, when I, I went to college, I was an English major. I always wanted to be a writer. And then my father, when I started doing stand-up, was very supportive. But he said, write. He goes, the only advice I'm going to give you is go follow your dream, be a stand-up, do everything you need to do, but always be writing because that's the thing you're going to be able to count on throughout your career. And it turned out to be very prescient. I mean, I I, I got my first writing job because I was on... Uh, I was doing audience warm up for Bill Maher on Politically Incorrect. And so he would see me doing my stand up in front of the crowd every night. And then one day, uh, Bill Carter comes to me, not Bill Carter, Scott Carter comes to me. The and, executive producer of that show. And he says, uh, Bill loves your stand up. How would you like to write on the show? Which is also an interesting thing to show you what kind of a, a person Bill Maher was in the business. Many people who host their own shows, they'll never go out and watch the warm up guy. Right. But he did. He took note. Yeah. So he invited me on and I, that was my first writing job. And now I, that was a tough gig writing for Bill Maher. Oh yeah. Now he's a very, 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 very demanding person when it comes to the writing. And similarly to Dennis Miller, and I know Bill would be upset if I compared him to Dennis Miller in the writer's room, but I will compare him to Dennis Miller in the brilliance department. The fact is, is that Dennis Miller was always the kind of guy who was the, if, if you work for Dennis Miller, be like, hey, Greg, listen, I just want to tell you something. I didn't bring you here to be my friend. I brought you here to be a great writer. Mm -hmm. So we're not friends. I expect you to be a great writer. Mm -hmm. And I think in Bill's case, I think that's the way it was. And it's hard when you're working hard and killing yourself and getting there early and working late for some reason, the comedian and the and inside every comedian, they want to be loved. Oh, yeah. They want to know that they're recognized and that they can hang well, out. Well, transitioning from being in front of the crowd yourself 
and getting all the accolades, all the attention, total control of the material to going into a room with eight other guys and fighting to get one line in. You know, we would show up and by 11 a.m. you had to have 40 jokes written. <laughs> and then you'd send those in and those were for the monologue. And then about three hours later, the, the sheet would come back with the jokes that were picked and the initials of the writer who had written that joke. And if you didn't score a joke that day... You didn't feel good at all. And then you had days where you scored three, four jokes and you felt like I'm the shit. So you lived day to day by those monologue jokes. And then you started writing on topics and pitching topics and writing jokes for the contestant, for the panelists to have. And so anyway, so I did that, but then I ended up with a, a deal. And so I um, ended up moving to L.A., not too long after that, but the seed was planted. I was like, I was in the Writers Guild and I'd sold, a, this, was my, I, this was my second sitcom that I went out. So I was writing scripts and then- And when you write for these shows, you know, when you're in the Writers Guild, which you get in the Writers Guild if it's a union show, granted variety shows don't pay as much as scripted shows because the scripted shows now, if you're a baby writer on a scripted show or a half hour sitcom, you're making over $4,000 a week. But in these variety shows, it was normally about, I'd say, one third of that to one half of that a week that you were making. But sometimes in certain shows that were established and that were doing really well, they would give you a little more. Uh, I don't want to get into what you're making, but that's normally how it made. But, but at that time, when you're making that each week, it, it, it adds up. Yeah, it adds up and it's just a, it's a sense of, um, you know, being part of a community. And, and I think having spent so many years, you, you're a solo act as a stand up and you've got nobody to commiserate with. You've got other comics that you can talk to, but it's not like showing up to an office where you've got your own coffee mug. There's the PA that you flirt with. There's the other comedians that you uh, you're making each other laugh in this community. And I love that. And I, you know, Louis C.K. was an inspiration for me in terms of being a stand up and continuing to write and taking that extra effort after a long day of writing to still go out and do a set at the comedy club. And uh, so when I got to L.A., uh, Louis got me my first writing job in L.A., which was also on a variety show, Cedric the Entertainer Presents. And from there, he hired me to write on his pilot and uh, and then eventually on Lucky Louis. So he, I owe him a lot in terms of being on the writer's side of things. And then I would always just pick up, um, I've been very lucky to pick up uh, consulting producer writing jobs where I can go in two or three days a week. So I was able to work it around my schedule and still do a lot of stand-up. And then I've been able to sell shows and now I'm kind of a showrunner on some shows. Kind of a? Well, I'm a showrunner on some shows. Beautiful thing about that is I got to hire Dennis Miller's son on a pilot that I sold to FX last fall that we shot. Wow. Yeah. I remember uh, uh, Jeff Ross interviewed uh, Dennis Miller years ago when Jeff was probably Jeff Lifschultz or close right. when he changed to Jeff Ross. And he said to Dennis, it was a really quick interview. He said to Dennis, say, how would you feel if your children became stand-up comedians? And Dennis said, hey, I wouldn't mind. I mean, I, I'd support him if he wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I, I'm fine with that. And there was a pause. And Jeff said... What if he was a guitar act? <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. And Dennis Miller said, oh, that's so inside. He was laughing. For the record, look out for this kid. His name is, is Holden, and he is a brilliant young... He's, he's going he's gonna to do a lot of great things. How old is he now? 23, something awesome. crazy. Yeah. Awesome. So tell me how you got working with Ellen DeGeneres. 
Um, my daughter had just been born and I really wanted to be off the road. And so I heard about Ellen getting a talk show and she was one of the people that I, you know, like anybody just had so much respect for. She was on the Mount Rushmore of comics in my mind. And so I said, I really want this job. And so I happened to know the woman that was the executive producer, uh, Mary Connolly had booked me to do stand up. She was on Letterman when I did Letterman. And then she booked me on um, Wonderful Craig Kilborn show a bunch of times. So we had a relationship. And then um, uh, Karen uh, Kilgariff was the head writer. So I had a couple solid ins. Relationships, everybody. Right. So I wrote a, I wrote a, a packet for the show, you know, some monologue jokes, some sketches. Which is what you normally have to do. They give you a guideline of a packet that to follow and then you write it out and you right. send it in. and Sent it in and uh, she... I, I believe I got the job without even meeting her. I think I got I think I got hired off the packet. And then I came in, you know, like four months before the show started, we were in there figuring out what what's this show? You know, what's the structure? Uh, how are we going to get her over from her stand-up mark to the desk? How about she dances? <laughs> like literally that was one of the meetings. And, uh, and so I did that for a couple of years. And it was... Um, and here's the funny thing is I was hired as a writer producer and then we were trying to find an audience warm up person and Ellen couldn't find anybody she liked. And so we started doing test shows and she gives me the mic. She goes, go out and do the, we had audiences do, do the warm up. So I'm doing the warm up for the test shows. And then we get closer to the air date and she's like, Greg, you're doing warm up for the series. I'm like, I'm not doing fucking warm up on the show. And then I find out that on top of my salary, it's like another salary. It's it is. It's, it's like, real money. It's real money, and the the best warm up guys in town make about fifteen hundred dollars a show or more. Oh yeah, and so and if you're doing a show that's going five days a week, I'm sure you weren't making fifteen hundred a show five days a week. But you're you know you get a pretty good chunk it of was money. Pretty, it was pretty close, and and the warm up was essentially warmed down. These people were out of their minds. They were so happy. I came out ten minutes of welcome to the show. Here's what's going to happen. And then, uh, and then the show would start and I was pretty much done during the, during the commercial breaks, they played music and danced. And, uh, I sat in the front row with cue cards and I was the only writer that did that. And I just wrote jokes furiously and I held them up. I'd be standing over Tom Cruise's shoulder, holding up a joke for Ellen to read, you know, running around the stage with, with cue cards. On average, what percentage did she use of I'd, the jokes you wrote? I'd score anywhere from four to 10 jokes a show. On top of writing monologue jokes. What was it like to win that first Emmy? Not, not a big deal. You know, I, I just, it, I don't want to be disingenuous about it, but it was like, um, it was exciting, but I really, uh, I never went to any of the ceremonies and it just felt like, you know, they're daytime Emmys, which is, which is very nice. But uh, it was just weird. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like I earned it or deserved it. it what was, about the fourth one? Did you feel like you earned that probably one? Probably even less. It just felt silly, you know. Boy, you are Irish. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I just I just feel like uh, you know we worked hard on the show, but it's not like if I had four Emmys, there'd like be the doorstops here on each door. There'd be one yeah. stand sitting on the table here, just right. to, because no, probably not. But it wasn't like I wrote a script of an episode that won the Emmy. You know, there was like seven writers and we all got them. And uh, I don't know. It's nice. It's very, it was very nice. Got it. And I consider Ellen also to be a genius. 
And you talked about the Mount Rushmore of comedy. There's somebody else who I believe should be on the Mount Rushmore of comedy in an alternative universe, and that's Howard Stern. Hmm. Another BU graduate. That's right. And I think that when you go on Letterman and you get his validation, another genius, Ellen, get her validation where she wants you to actually be the person who warms up her crowd, the safety net for her. The person who makes her feel safe. That's the guy. Every time Letterman went out and Eddie Brill was doing the warm up, he'd go to Eddie and say, how are they? Right. So then you're doing Howard Stern, who, is there anybody more of a genius, a guy who has to come up with four hours of material every day and, and figure it out? And then goes now recently goes on America's Got Talent completely changes who he is on the radio and the show doesn't even exist without him anymore. It's like if he gets off of it. So another, a third person that you work with as well as Louie, who I consider to be an incredible genius when it comes to working hard and just keep staying the course and going through it. So talk about what it was like to go on Howard for the first time. Was that similar to Letterman where you were, cause you're a New York guy. Yeah. Your, your father was a, a radio guy. Well, that's the hitch is that on Howard's way up, he went after the other DJs. So he regularly shit on my father and he was persona non grata in my house. My mother to this day hates Howard Stern and my father, my father got what Howard was doing. He understood the strategy of, you know, going after William B. Williams and Don Imus and all the guys that were uh, ahead of him. And so, um, you know, it was tough. It was, uh, it was very mixed. My father, when my father died, Howard eulogized him and it was very beautiful. He talked about, it's funny that you, your intro was this, but he said that my father was the most liked guy in the industry and that he was somebody that Howard learned a lot from and he respected and he respected his work ethic and the way he treated people and all this stuff. And so to me, he buried the hatchet. I, did, I didn't have any bad blood with Howard after that. I was a fan of the show, which I would never tell my mother. And so the, suddenly Jackie the Joke Man leaves the show and they're looking for somebody to fill the seat. And that year I had gone and done that uh, HBO uh, comedy festival and I got the jury award. So I suddenly was on their radar. I was like, who's this kid? Let's bring him in. Whoa, he's Bob Fitzsimmons' son? Oh yeah, let's definitely bring him in. So I go in and I walk into the studio and I don't know if I'm gonna get attacked. I've, you know, I know Howard's style. I don't know if we're going to sit down and he's going to start taking shots at my dad, in which case it would have been war, obviously. But you know Howard, and Howard has like this thing where he has this deep-seated respect. And he puts all that shit aside when it's a moment like that. Right. I, I feel you, you had to have known he wasn't going to attack you. Well, I wouldn't have gone in if I thought that it was likely, but I also had to prepare for that possibility. I'd be stupid not to. So I didn't sleep the night before and I really had visions of like, what, what am I going to, I'm going to get angry and that's not going to be funny if he says anything about my dad. So I go in and again, he eulogizes my dad. I mean, he, you know, bends over backwards to talk about what a great guy he was, talks about how he felt bad about the things he said about my dad. Um, so to me, it was like, all right, we're good, you know? And then I just started, throwing out jokes you know and that's i think the thing that 
the thing that always worked for me on that show was that I never made it about me. Like Robert Schimmel would come in and he had stories that were, you know, just pull your car over and laugh and be amazed by. But that guy can't come in once a month. You know, I was the guy that came in and just he'd do the news and I'd toss out jokes. You know, Howard do the joke. I throw a tagline in on it. I'd have an opinion on something that's real quick. Never about me. Just poke checks. And so I was able to come into the show, you know, five, six times a year for years, you know, for 10 years. And so that became something that um, when you're in the room talking to Howard, you know, the first dozen times, you're a little bit dizzy. You know, you're looking at Robin in her booth, Fred's <laughs> over your shoulder, Baba Booey's running in to talk on the microphone next to you. And you're just looking at Howard and Howard gives you this intense eye contact. He's got sunglasses on, but he's looking right at you. And so like any, you know, I think the, the key to doing interviews is just, just look at the person and be available to them. And so I would just sit there and connect with Howard and he would take you where you needed to go. You just had to give yourself over to him. Don't deflect, tell the truth and you'll be fine. You got to trust him. And that just, that just worked for me. And it taught me everything I know about doing radio, being interviewed. And, and so when I go on now, like I go on Corolla a lot of times and um, he just said to me, I went on the show last week and he said, basically when I see that you're the guest on the show, he said, I just, breathe a sigh of relief and I smile because I know you're going to come in and you get it. You get the rhythm of the show. And that I think is the best thing that you can do on radio is to just, it's the other person's show and support them, make them look good. And you'll be a welcome guest. Another guy who could be argued as a genius who you make feel safe. Oh yeah. Right. So that's what the running theme here is. So you talked a lot about stand up and I like asking comedians who are executive producers and who've been through the gamut of writing and producing and and their own radio shows. You're out there. You know comedy. Nobody knows comedy like you know comedy. Tell our audience some people who are doing stand-up out there in the world now that speak to you who maybe no one knows about yet, but in your mind, soon they will. You mentioned Dennis Miller is somebody who was talented and his son was, you know, um, Holden Miller. Right. But I don't know if he's doing stand-up regularly. No, he's kind of writing. So and... so take us through some, you know, some performers that you feel speak to you, their comedy kind of, you feel that they're doing the right thing and they're on the right track to the next level. Right. Um, well, Gerard Carmichael, who's kind of, he's broken now because... Uh, he did a special on HBO, but up until that, nobody had heard of him. And I've been, uh, I, I'm mourning the fact that he's going to get a big movie and TV career because there's another guy who is not going to now do his 10,000 hours on the road doing stand up. He's going to be pulled into fame and wealth. And, you know, and he's such a talented, natural, and a hardworking comic, writes a lot. But, you can only get so good when you're only playing in town and, you know, but, but, you know, he could go to the level where he does his TV and movie work and also goes on the road. And, but I mean, he's, he's fantastic. He's a, he's a rare talent. I agree. Yeah. Um, Michael Che, who's now on SNL, I would have said the same thing about six months ago before he got that job. The, so for the black guys, 
uh, there's that. <laughs> um, some of the guys that are just the, the pillars of New York comedy that people don't necessarily know, like uh, Big J Okerson, um, you know, they're, they're just uh, guys that turn in sets at the Comedy Cellar night after night and kill and kill. And yeah, it was kind of, you know, interesting would be mentioned Big J Okerson, because in the beginning, you talk about how you try to find your voice and you try to find where you are. And I felt in the beginning, like Dave Attell was so iconic in New York City, I felt like a lot of people, including Jay Okerson, were sort of doing a cadence and a rhythm kind of comedy like right. Attell. But then slowly you find your own voice and you find something who you are. And then before you know it, that doesn't even exist anymore. And you become your own thing, which is great. And I think that's what he's done. Yes, I'm guilty of that too. I definitely had some Attell cadence. You cannot watch Attell every night in New York and not start to feel like this is the language of comedy. This this um, kind of darkness and this this pirate. He's a pirate. He's you know, telling pirate stories. You know, as a comedian, you're doing the right thing when you go on stage and all of a sudden people start coming into the room. And you're watching from the stage and you got the lights in your eyes and you realize the people coming in the room are all stand-up comedians to watch you. Yeah. And even when you do a joke that falls flat, the things that he used to do, like grab the top of the mic and turn it and say, let me turn Turn this to funny funny. (laughs) or whatever. It's just just so great. Right. Uh, Incredible. Anybody else you want to mention? Um, Let's see. I just worked with a guy in Atlanta I thought was very funny. Um... You know, I work on the road with a lot of guys that are really funny. There's a guy named Ian Carmel, who I worked with in uh, Portland a couple times and just was immediately like, this guy just has got it. He's got it. And so... Uh, so you don't bring your own opening acts? No, because I feel like, you know, every local scene, like when I was in Boston, I didn't want to be displaced by some headliner coming in and bringing a feature act. It's like when I go to Denver or Austin, I feel like they've got their comedy scene. I trust the club bookers to put in somebody that's a good fit with me. And all I ask is that they don't do crowd work. And, you know, I, I don't care who it is. I don't care if they play guitar, if it's a redneck, if it's a big black guy. You know, it has no effect on my act as long as they're a decent comic. And um, so, uh, yeah, Ian Carmel, he's really strong. He's in L.A. now. He came down here and um, took it took it by storm. I, I, I don't even know if I helped him get his first spot on stage. I might have. But then he immediately got hired by the Chelsea Handler Show as a writer and became a regular panelist on there. And I think he's got this is all in the last year. And now it's everything's kind of popping for him. Oh, you seem like you have a great sense of who's going to make it. So it's interesting me asking you that because I think it's important hearing a guy's voice of, of your stature and who you believe is going to do something special. It, it, it means a lot. So based on all these experiences that you've had, what advice would you have for the person starting out and trying to get to the point and have the kind of career that you have? I guess, you know, it's nice that you say all these things about me, but I think one of the things it points out is that um, I don't know that I put enough focus on having, um, I don't know that I had the confidence to really say or the the clarity to know what I really wanted long-term in my career and then the confidence to have the restraint to not do things that would keep me from getting there. Like, I'm half-joking when I talk about the porn awards, but... I said to Jimmy Kimmel on an interview, I said, what, what does a guy like me need to do to become a guy like you? And he says, don't host things like the porn awards. 
And, you know, I had a lot of fun along the way. And I think I just sort of honored my impulses. And when somebody offered me a job, if it was writing, if it was hosting, if it was a talking head show on whatever, it was doing a corporate gig, I just went after all of it. I was hungry and excited. And it, if it seemed like fun, I did it. But I think you have to, and you're a manager, so you know this more than I do. I think you need to have uh, a belief enough in yourself that you put yourself in the four seasons and that, you know, you take the hit financially sometimes to not do things that are going to take you off of a path that could really lead you to a place that you can look back on at the end of your career and say, even if I didn't make it, I really, I played it right. And I, you know, I, but I don't know that I ever had a clear vision of anything but stand up. I mean, stand up is the thing I wanted to do. It's what I continue to do. I'm leaving for Pittsburgh tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I think it's hard because the payoff with becoming a successful standup is that you're away a lot. And that, that has become a burden for me with kids. Um, so I would say if you, if you're a standup that's starting out, realize there's a lot of directions you can go in with it. Try to really get clear on which of those directions is right for you, works for your life. You've got the passion for, and then, um, and then really try to, not do things that are going to distract you from it and are going to make people associate you with like people don't think of me and go, Oh yeah, Greg Fitzsimmons, the writer. Oh yeah. Greg Fitzsimmons. They, they kind of know I do some stuff, but when you're casting something and you're the network executive, that's looking for the next host of the tonight show, my name doesn't come up on that list. And that's the thing that I think I ultimately really wanted was to host a late night talk show. And I haven't had that chance. And um, I don't know if I could have done things in a way that would have led me there if I'd really just said to my agents and managers, I just want to host things. Do stand up, host things. I don't know. Um, I don't have regrets, but I do think um, comedians can be a little bit um, desperate. And I think, I, I think at times I've been desperate about doing things instead of uh, staying on track. Unbelievable. This has been so great. Undeniable, Greg Fitzsimmons. And let me tell you something. Your dad was nice. You're nice. I can guarantee you, your children will be nice. They're good kids. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Barry. I had a great time. Oh, I'm glad you did. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. 
So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.